защитим и наш народ, и нашу государственность от любых угроз. В том числе от внутреннего предательства. А то, с чем мы столкнулись, это именно предательство. Непомерные амбиции и личные интересы привели к измене. It was the 24 hours that perplexed the world. When mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin's long-standing feud with the Russian Defense Ministry escalated last weekend with his Wagner forces seizing a military headquarters in Rostov-on-Don and then rolling toward Moscow, many wondered whether Russia was about to descend into warlordism and possibly even civil war. And when just a day later, Prigozhin retreated and went into exile in Belarus, many were asking what the hell just happened. The aftermath of Prigozhin's rebellion leaves many questions. To what extent will this weaken Putin's flourish? Will Putin use it to purge the elite? What will happen to Prigozhin, and what effect will it have on Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine? But one thing is certain. We are now in uncharted territory in Putin's 23-year reign. So what happens next? Well, I got two awesome guests to help us break it down and get a lot smarter. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Political Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is the one and only Jade Scher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program of Chatham House and the author of the book, Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to The Vertical, James. Thank you. I wish the circumstances were better, but here I am. Uh, the sir, yeah, we, we always wish the circumstances were better, but it's always great to have you. And also joining us also from across the Atlantic is Lithuania's enchanting capital city, Vilnius, is my old friend Konstantin Egger, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC Russian Service. Welcome back to Austria. It's always great to see you. Hello, Brian. Hello. Lava Svakaras, as they say in Lava Svakaras. So one way to look at what just happened is that in the words of RFRL journalist Vaja Tabaridze, we have a case of Russians killing Russians because they disagree about how to kill Ukrainians, which actually doesn't speak very well about the moral state of Vladimir Putin's Russia. Another way to look at this is that Putin's informal system of governance, which is based on patronage networks, Kremlin clans, and a venture capital foreign policy that outsources key tasks to nominally private sector actors has finally broken down, suggesting that Putin, the holder of the balance in the system, is severely weakened. To get us started, I want to, uh, now that we've all had a week to digest what's happened, I want to get both of your top-line takeaways. James, in a forthcoming article, you called Prigozhin's uprising, quote, a genuine insurrection, adding that the system of power in Russia and Putin's own place in it will not be the same. Could you elaborate on that and give us your top-line takes a week into this drama? Well, um, everyone should know the Russians are calling it a myatyezh, a mutiny. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, it's obviously more than that because an attack on a country's armed forces leadership is by definition an attack upon the state itself. And whether or not in Prigozhin's head, uh, and I think this was in his head, 
uh, there was no threat intended to Putin himself or to the other structures of power. Um, this is uh, a monumental event, and it is at least as significant as the last such event that occurred 30 years ago, uh, which ended with the storming of the Russian White House. And add to that, you, you correctly, uh, Brian, pointed to the fact that this is a very specific, exceptionally complicated system of power in Russia, built not only on divide and rule and intricate patronage networks, but an overlapping and untidy fusion at every level between money and power. And uh, being the steward of this requires extraordinary skill and work. And Putin has owed his position over the years to the fact that no one has been perceived to be better at this. And he created this system. Well, he's lost his touch now, hasn't he? This is obvious. You have, have you know, this, if you look at who Prigozhin was, at all his connections and networks, in the armed forces, in other structures of power, even in the political establishment, financial circles because of his business and his discontent, mounting discontent, you can't avoid this. This is like smoldering potash needing to explode. And yet the central structures of power, I think like Putin himself was completely surprised and taken aback until it exploded. Yeah, which is surprising to me because Western intelligence saw this coming. How the hell did Putin's intelligence not see this coming? James, I want to kind of follow up on this a little bit and like wonder, look at what didn't happen. Um, the extent to which Putin really did dodge a bullet here because we're seeing now the Zachiska's beginning, the purge is beginning, right? Where I'm seeing uh, investigations into the pilots who didn't fire on the Wagner convoy is, is underway. Uh, Suravikin, of course, is uh, nowhere to be seen and rumored to be under arrest or detained, um, the, was Prigozhin appeared to have been counting on a degree of support within the security establishment, and it didn't come. How do you view that? Is, did Putin dodge a bullet, or was this a non-starter from the start? He counted on considerable sympathy, and he had it, uh, and was possibly also counting on active support. And from what I was, I have seen, in Rastov-na-Danu, Shoigu was there mm -hmm. and possibly expecting to grab him, which would have put him in quite a formidable position. Uh, I mean, and this, by the way, is the headquarters of the Southern Military District of Russia, which runs the war in Ukraine. Ukraine. Um, and he was, you know, therefore expecting that there would be some proper dialogue and accommodation. Um, and he didn't get it. Now, I don't think he ever intended to get to Moscow, storm the Kremlin. It was not a question right. of just taking over the Ministry of Defense. He expected these people to be there. He expected to trigger a lot of momentum so that Putin himself would climb down. Well, in the end, both sides blinked. Right. Bottom line is still that the system of power in Russia 
is 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 shaken and deeply mm -hmm. damaged. And consider what you and I have both said about all the networks of support that exists, all the networks of bitterness and grievance about the leadership of the armed forces, the management of the armed forces, and the management of this war. Um, the fact that the, even if Precaution is in exile and stays quiet and behaves himself, does as he's told. Uh, this does not end this in any, by any right. means. The foundations of this house now cannot take much more shaky. Right. We've always said the regime is brittle, and it was very subject to a shock. And this certainly was a shock. Costia, in an interview with RFRL's Georgian service this past week, you made a similar assessment, saying, and I'm quoting, Putin regime, as we know it, is over and something new is starting in Russia. Can you elaborate that and explain and also give us your top line uh, takeaways on this? Well, I think that uh, after what has happened, uh, we will see new trends inside the regime for one simple reason. Putin's regime is not just Putin, Patrushev, Lavrov, and this kind of uh, bunch of people that uh, surround them in Moscow and go to dine at the Cafe Pushkin. Uh, it's hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of civil servants, bureaucrats, Putin lackeys, choose your name, that run Russia on Putin's behalf, from Vladivostok to Kaliningrad. These are the, you know, FSB chief for Tumenska, Oblast, this is Rost Rostneft coordinator for uh, northwestern Russia. This is Vice Governor of Krasnoyarsky Krai. Uh, uh, it's a lot of people that are used to certain pattern of behavior on behalf on on the part of Putin. This pattern has been broken. Moreover, I think it started to go haywire uh, with Prigozhin's uh, telegram rebellion when he started berating um, uh, top officers in Russia and you know, Putin's closest. Uh, collaborators in the military uh, in a language which, which would have landed Navalny not, not in jail, but probably in the coffin. But this was going on for quite some time, and I think this already created quite a buzz and quite a disorientation inside the Russian bureaucracy. What they've seen after that is something that, as you rightly said, was not seen in Russia, or yet James said, was not seen in Russia since 1993 conflict between Yeltsin Parliament. Moreover, at least then it was clear that two branches of uh, of of uh, authority are clashing it uh, between themselves. This was an absolutely stunning event in which someone who has no official position, but who someone understands, everyone understands this is this is someone who is close to Putin at least is doing Putin's bidding, is now telling Putin to replace. The Minister of Defense and the Chief of General Staff, moreover, promises to arrest him. Now, if let us imagine, if Prigozhin succeeded and forced Putin to replace these two people, even without replacing Putin, who would be the ruler of Russia? Of course, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I think that all these people, are, especially those who are in the younger mm. layer of the bureaucracies, those who are 40 plus and who hope that, you know, they have a career in front of them, much more money to steal from the state budget and stuff like that. Uh, bigger audits, better planes, stuff like that. You know, uh, they suddenly realize that something's going terribly wrong 
and that Putin is definitely not controlling the situation. I think that Putin actually mm, significantly undermined his political future by appearing on television um, and rambling for four minutes about 1917 before actually cutting to the chase and saying that he's going to you know, prosecute traitors and so forth. And then seven hours later, he's not prosecuting them. And as far as we know, Prigozhin is still alive. So to the to Russian bureaucracy, to those who were Putin's lapdogs for 20 plus years, this is a signal that something is really terribly wrong in Moscow. What it means, it doesn't mean they're going to revolt or that they're going to, you know, wave pro-democracy flags. No, they're going to be quiet. They're going to look for people who are maybe up and coming. Maybe they'll be wrong, but they'll be looking for those people. And they will be cutting their initiative to the minimum because they wouldn't know what happens after that. That usually paralyzes the regime. Now, there is a chance that Putin will now go full Saddam Hussein uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, sort of arrest people left, right, and center. Maybe. First of all, I do not think he'll do that because I think he understands that he needs the support of the bureaucracy. And if he starts doing that, then people will say, well, he's weak, he's indecisive, he runs some kind of very shady operations. On top of it, he arbitrarily arrests people. What is the future in all that? So I suppose that he will probably punish a couple of people, several people, but he'll try to limit it, and he'll be looking for ways of actually trying to placate this bureaucracy and to buy off its loyalty again. But, and this is the final thing I want to say in response to you, um, there is an interesting Russian expression. If you saw something... You can't see it back. You cannot not see it back. So I think that this is what happened. This image of rambling Putin comparing himself inadvertently to Nicholas II, not the most successful ruler in is going to stick in the minds of all these policemen, FSBshniki, Brosneft, and the governors, and so forth. And they now probably also know they should start buying more baskets and putting their eggs in different baskets. James, would you agree with that? I know you wanted to jump in here. I absolutely agree with that. Um, so much that Kostya reminded me of two other important points. Um, Rikorjin had a function. He was, of course, a very, very close and trusted ally of Putin. So when Putin talks about betrayal, it's something personal. It's not just political. But he had a function. What has kept Putin up at night has not been the so-called democratic opposition. Mm -hmm. It has been the so-called party of war. Prigozhin, with all his charisma and all his anger, who has been absolutely 100% loyal to Putin, has drawn off much of the venom of the party of war. And that has been his systemic function. Now he's no longer there. He's crossed Putin directly. And therefore, what do you do with the rest? And then there's a dilemma. We get to the second point I wanted to make. Um, the, uh, you know, to quote uh, a, a Russian analyst, Pavel Luzin, that Putin, what this exposes is that Putin clearly has been in a uh, an information, a communications vacuum, 
And some of it is deliberate isolation, but some of it is the way the system works. Now, this is monumentally ironic because you have a state that conducts um, intricate and forbidding info war, both at home and on a global scale, and yet is not even able to transmit um, information in a timely way uh, when it is threatened internally by people who can threaten it. So, yeah, as Costi was saying, there are really two dilemmas here. If you want to conduct a purge, a real purge, can you? Who can you now trust? What levers actually work? And should you? What are you going to end up with? Uh, Putin, by the way, is uh, this is not genuinely accepted. He's a chronically indecisive person to begin with. Yes. Uh, um, and so, obviously, his first steps have been, look, very dramatic. Um, and he's going to try to reconstitute his authority. But there's a real dilemma here. And I don't see, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see an obvious answer to it. I want to drill down into that dilemma, James, because I actually, as I was thinking about this, my, my one of my most useful metaphors for analyzing the actions of the Russian state is to not look at it like a state, but look at it like a crime syndicate. Um, these intricate kind of patronage networks very much resemble what a crime syndicate looks like in practice. Putin's the godfather, there's capos, they're under, they're underbosses, right? Prigozhin was a, an underboss, basically. And he, he, he came at the king. Right to quote from my favorite uh, television series, The Wire: If you come at the king, you best not miss. Um, well, Prigozhin missed. Um, and what does that mean going forward? You both have kind of given me the kind of two trajectories this could go in. One of them is this 1937 style, so a massive purge of the elite. You could see that happen. If that happens, I got a number of questions like, whom does Putin trust right now? Kabalchuk and Patrashev? Is that it? I mean, who is really close to Putin? Whom does Putin trust right now? And if he doesn't go in that direction, I seem to hear you both saying there's going to be a slow erosion of, of, of loyalty within the regime. People are going to start to be looking for an alternative um, to, to, to Putin going forward to keep the system in balance. Uh, I, I want to get kind of, James, did I frame that? Did, do you agree with my framing there? Would you add anything to that? And I want to get Kofi in on this too. Same. Um, that the the bigger issue is not whether Putin wants to um, um, reinstate nineteen thirty seven, but whether he whether he yeah. can. That is the that is the point. How much of this um, is 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 now. Um, is now actually uh, working and functional. And, you know, another point which just adds to it, well, Putin had an un un unformalized compact with Russia. You stay out of the state's business and we, the state, will leave you alone. And he inferred from the fact that he was leaving people alone uh, and they were content and they were not sticking their heads above the parapet by and large. He conflated that into support. No, that's not support. So you get into a crisis like this, and what you find on the part of most people, and I'm talking about, because this includes key people in the Russian military, they just don't react. 
they try to stay out of trouble. When there's trouble, they try not to be there. Um, and I don't think he's been calculating on this either. So this is where we are. Uh, I make no prediction as to what you do with this uh, Im imbalance. I, I don't know if Kostya has a clearer vision than, than I do, but that's, uh, you know, this is um, just not happy for anybody. No, we're in, we're in uncharted territory here. Kosti, your thoughts? Well, I do think that uh, Putin's been really misrepresented as this sort of very brutal and resolute person. I think by now a lot of people in the West understood that he is not resolute, that he only uh, acts when he feels that he has very weak adversaries in front of him, at least in international politics. That's why, by the way, I'm absolutely certain that nothing is going to happen uh, to the Baltic states and he's not going to blow up the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant because he knows he's now facing essentially NATO. And he knows, and Shoigu knows, and Gerasimov knows, and Comrade Sergeant uh, deployed via Murmansk on the Norwegian border knows that NATO is much, much stronger. But everyone thought that he's going to be very strong and resolute in defending his own positions at home. And it turned out that he's not that strong here either. So I do not think, well, he may try 1937. I don't think he can do it. Uh, first, he's no Stalin. Secondly, the, well, Russia today is no Soviet Union in 1937. Um, no one believes in anything because part of this 1937 uh, purges, of course, was belief in, in certain ideas, I mean, wrong ideas, horrible ideas, but still, no one believes in anything anymore. And now, with rumors coming out of Moscow that this rebellion is going to be presented to at least partially save Putin's face as essentially a quarrel over money, right? And even probably drugs, because there were reports in the Russian opposition media that. General Sorovikin, whom we haven't seen for a long time, is going to be accused of, uh, of running drugs together with Prigozhin. Imagine that. Maybe they did, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised. I would, uh, that wouldn't surprise me one bit. Yeah. Uh, look, after that, everything comes undone. It's all about money. Moreover, the signal they're going to send to the society, it is all about money. So I think that in such circumstances, running a 1937 business is actually out of the question. I think that Putin will be looking towards trying to attract people more, probably cutting them bigger pieces of the pie. I'm not the only one who thinks that I, I spoke and I interviewed a Polish expert professor, uh, Agnieszka Legutska from the Polish Institute of International Affairs. She actually thinks the same. She thinks that Putin is too weak to run a full, you know, chistka, full purge that he will have to come back to sweetening it all to the elite. And that emits the, the smell of the smell of weakness. Yeah, it, well, doesn't, it looks like he loses either way. I want to say, one thing I want to say, the party war, whether it exists or not, I really do not know because the war is not going very well. Who wants to be on the side of the party war when you have to make such an amazing, huge efforts to turn the tide? But if there is one, then, of course, it will also have a bit of a difficulty recruiting there. 
because um, I think that the signal that uh, this 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 uh, these thirty six hours, I think they sent a signal to everyone. Now everyone is for him or herself, and this is not a very kind of conducive climate for introducing this idea, oh, now we're going to fight the war the proper way. We're going to put the couple of guys in jail, and suddenly, you know, uh, there's going to be ammunition, there's going to be efficient tactics and strategy, and suddenly uh, we're, we're going to produce lots of military geniuses. That's not going to happen, even if they put 10 guys in jail. Or 20. Isn't, isn't it ironic that Yeltsin who has been associated all these years in the public mind with weakness, and this is an image that was fostered by Putin, and Putin was steely resolution. Isn't it ironic that in 1993, when Yeltsin faced this rebellion, he suppressed it with unmitigated brutality? There were over a hundred people shot in the cellars, the lower levels of the Russian White House. This was a slaughter. Uh, he didn't hesitate. So, you know, this is very interesting. But the main point I wanted to make is, yes, this is being spun. It will be spun as all about money, and they'll try to use resources as a way to keep people happy and minimize, um, minimize any further defiance. But it's actually not all about money. Russia is a state. And if you if you look at what Russia is doing in Ukraine, you know it is a state. Um, you look even at what Wagner has been doing across the world. It's a wonderful application of deniable state power where they control resources, but in the process of controlling these gold and diamond mines and everything else, um, they are... Um, actually advancing the geopolitical aims of Russia in Syria, right. in North, in, in, in Libya, in Mali, in Mali, in the Central African Republic. Uh, so it's a wonderful hybrid system. And what I find also very comic, and there's a lot of comedy here, <laughs> all these years Putin has been saying to the West, don't complain to us about Wagner. It is not a state actor. It's a private military company like Blackwater. You have private mm. military companies. I even hear it this kind of nonsense. Now he's saying it's all being funded out of the state budget. Now, um, uh, you, I, I, you know, this would be hilarious. Um, the, sad, the sad thing is that it, before Putin actually made these comments, People in the West, learned people in the West have been having arguments about all of this as if it was in doubt. Yeah. So what are you, you know, what is now going to happen mm -hmm. with Wagner and all the assets it controls? What, this is a bigger issue. I know you want to get onto it in the second half, possibly. The whole reaction in the whole global South, the uh, countries that have basically Count regimes that have counted on Russia and uh, are getting privileges from Russia one sort or another and trusted Russia as something stable, competent, firm. Now what are they going to think and do? 
Well, one other thing, I mean, I'm looking at a bunch of data. You pointed to one of them there, James. What happens to Wagner? What happens to Prigozhin? Again, you come at the king, you best not miss what you missed. Is he going to be alive much longer? I've heard rumors he might go into exile in the Central African Republic. Um, I don't think he's really safe in Belarus. We have uh, General Servikin missing. We don't know. He's reportedly detained. We're seeing that Viktor Zolotov has uh, requested and is receiving much more heavy weaponry for Rosgvardia. Um, if Putin has a Beria, I think it's going to be Zolotov if, if, it, if it goes in that direction. He's um, excuse me? <laughs> What's that? I said he's no Beria. He's no Beria. No, he's no Beria. But I mean, I'm, I'm, if, we're, if we're looking for metaphors, but like, how do you, how do you see all this playing out going forward? I saw a report today. I don't know if it's accurate or not that uh, Kovalchuk is making a play for the Wagner assets right now. Um, Kovalchuk was, of course, the businessman who's very, very close to Putin. Kostya, how do you see all of these data points? James, you're smiling, but I'll bring you in a sec. <laughs> well, so far, uh, we hear that Wagner is going to be partially dissolved in the Russian army. I do not think that lots of these guys will go and serve in the Russian army. They're used I don't to different, so rules and different rules and different uh, salaries, practically speaking. Exactly. Secondly, uh, okay, maybe some of them will go, but uh, those who miss the fighting more than they miss the money. Then others will probably do something in Belarus uh, because, as as we hear, Lukashenko wants to train his really miserable army in some kind of real combat. So maybe they're going to give them some of their experience, although, frankly speaking, Wagner's experience in Ukraine is definitely mixed. Uh, they are probably good at hybrid warfare, and they are okay in Central African Republic, but once fighting regular Ukrainian forces, well, in Bakhmut, which is one Ukrainian set, small even by you, but is small even by the Ukrainian standards, uh, they did not show themselves, uh, shown, they did not show themselves to be kind of stellar fighters. So I think that, on the other hand, what's going to happen is that part of the Wagner group will be reconstituted to run these operations abroad, in Africa or wherever they are demanded outside of the uh, kind of Russia-Ukraine space. Because, yes, they were useful. They uh, were an instrument in the Russian state, but they were also an instrument of, of protecting assets that the collective Putin slash Kovalchuk possessed in, let us say, Africa or managed to lay their hands on, or in Syria, for that matter. So I think that uh, Wagner will be reconstituted. The idea of having uh, this um, flexible military force with a lot of deniability in its uh, written into its sort of uh, image, uh, I think it, it's not going to be wasted. But I do think that they will be kept away, at least for some time, from any kind of fighting that will bring them into Russian military decision-making and into Russian politics. Because what happened is actually something that I think never happened since 1957, since Marshal Georgi Zhukov backed Molotov and others uh, who tried to push Khrushchev out of power. Mm. And even that, I mean, it was not a military rebellion, it was just 
basically Zhukov saying, I'll support you. It was bureaucratic maneuvering. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think that um, if you haven't had it since then, then probably the impression will be quite deep. And I do not think that the Wagnerites, who are, again, are not subordinate to official structures, would be that anywhere close to where they can impact uh, his regime. What about Prigozhin himself? Can we expect that he's going to have a Nepriyat next to China pretty soon? Well, look, he's smart uh, to the extent that uh, he understands that he's now in Putin's crosshairs unless. And now I do not want to enter this um, uh, territory of conspiracy theorizing, no. but, but unless he has something on Putin that protects him. Uh, I think that is completely unsafe for him to be in Belarus, it's completely unsafe for him to be in Russia. It is actually also quite unsafe for him to be in Central African Republic. The only safe place is probably FBI custody. But um, <laughs> I'm not certain he's going to surrender. Well, he is under indictment in the US, so I'm sure the FBI would be glad to yeah. Because otherwise, I think that he stepped on too many toes. He stepped on Putin's toes. Okay, Putin may decide, okay, for some reason, I will not touch him because there are reasons for that, high political reasons. Well, he's now stepped on a lot of toes of his own form of hiatus because of his basically betrayal of there. Some people will see it as betrayal, definitely. Um, and also, he is someone who proved to be fairly popular with at least some part of the Russian population. And we can debate whether there were thousands of people meeting Wagner and uh, getting a selfie with Prigozhin, these were hundreds. But it's clear that this man established a significant presence on, uh, in, on, in social media, the Russian telegram. He's a dominant figure. There. Um, he knows how to speak to the people. He swears, he's a virtuoso of swearing, which is, <laughs> it gives you a lot of marks. He went to jail, but not for murder or child molestation, which kind of strengthens your cred in certain circles in Russia. He's a fighter. He gives it as it is. I'd say that he would have had political future if Russia had an open political system. And I do not think that this will pass unnoticed in the Kremlin. So we should be looking at either Prigozhin saying, okay, I do not care whether I'm dead or alive or alive, but I'm going to try, I'm going to force all the way, go, go all the way, because I feel the wind is in my sort of, uh, the, the wind is blowing in the direction I want it to blow. But on the other hand, I think that if he really wants to continue this politicking, he'll be in danger, exactly because of his popularity. So it's his decision. I'm sure he understands all the risks. So if he continues to be in the public eye and he continues to be scornful of the decision-making that, that, that uh, you know, that, of the Kremlin's decision-making on Ukraine, uh, the general staff, of course, he then we can say, okay, he gambles with his life and probably he does it conscientiously. James? Yes. Um, I dare make a prediction, which one never should, about Prigozhin himself. If it looks is having success at rebuilding his authority, then I think Prigozhin will be quiet, and I think 
he will be safe as long as he's quiet. But it's quite clear the system is going on the skits. And um, Putin and company are becoming very apprehensive. Then I think he has to watch out uh, for the um, um, uh, the you know uh, the poison the poison bullet or the or uh, something similar. But the main point I think what's more important now than precaution, and I come back to it is what will happen to Wagner. You mentioned that, that uh, it's possible that Kovalchuk is going to get its assets. Some of those assets, yeah. Well, maybe. Sorry. Um, how is he going to protect them? What about the forces that make up Wagner? This is, Prigozhin is a charismatic leader. He has authority because he's Prigozhin. What is going to be the fate? I'm sure in the Central African Republic, the start even they're starting to ask this question. Um, what's going to happen with all these people who are who are like armed hell's angels, uh, who have no uh, who have no leader, no authority, no discipline? So I mean, you know, this this is a nature. It's it's going to be a major problem. Mm. I mean, I, I, and remember, Prigozhin's assets are more than Wagner. I don't think so. I don't think so. I disagree with Jade. I think that we have invested uh, via the Wagner Group with the kind of mystique that the Wagner Group wanted to be invested with, or rather, Prigozhin wanted it to be invested with. The Wagner Group exists because it recruits according to certain conditions, a certain criteria. It exists because it pays well. It exists because it has, as far as I understand, reading about it, an inbuilt sort of, if you wish, meritocratic system in which a former plumber may eventually command a bunch of former officers if he's good at conducting operations on the ground because this is hybrid war, because it's not fought according to the army manuals. And because of that, um, individual qualities play a significant role. Yes, you may not get someone as charismatic as Prigozhin, but I think you still have enough people who are cruel enough, sadistic enough, even if you wish, adventurous enough, and greedy enough to go into such kind of silence. What you will need to find, you will need to find someone who organizes them well, someone who keeps them in check, but I think that's a solvable problem. You do not necessarily have to have someone, you know, with this uh, pretensions of Al Capone and Zhukov at the same time as Prigozhin was. And probably now he thinks that he was, you know, an unrealized czar of Russia. You just need an effective commander who will ensure that checks are kept on time, that there is discipline, and that those who deserve promotion are promoted. That is it. I think that this will continue. This is still a country with huge numbers of potential mercenaries. Yeah, just to clarify, too, these reports that are, again, unconfirmed, it was about Prigozhin's assets, which are more than just Wagner, right? We're talking about the catering business, right? Where he originally got his money. We're talking about the uh, the internet research 
agency in St. Petersburg. So it's really unclear whether we're talking about, I mean, the fate of Wagner is really still up in the air. Before we move into the second half and talk about how this is all going to affect the, the war in Ukraine, one thing I wanted to just touch on briefly is the role of Alexander Lukashenko in all of this. How do each of you see this? Because I, this was not an independent initiative. I'm certain this was not an independent initiative by Lukashenko. He's trying to spin it like he's some master statesman right now. But how do you see the role? James, I, I see you wanted to, to say something about that. I um, uh, There is a line of discussion that in Russia that, I, uh, that in, in, intuitively makes sense to me that the key players in the negotiation were not uh, Lukashenko, Alexei, Alexei Dumin, who was mm -hmm. demoted being governor of, of Tula Oblast. Putin's former bodyguard, yeah, another one. Putin's former bodyguard, close ally of Prigozhin, uh, well-qualified uh, GRU Russian military intelligence officer, uh, I, there's a you know there's a lot of discussion that the the real substance was worked out between him and 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 Prigozhin and Lukashenko was entirely willing to play a role and get all the credit. Wouldn't you be if you were? Um... He was he was a cutout. There. That, he was just a cutout. That that is my instinct. Of course, we don't. That is my hypothesis. Yeah, no, that that's my that's my that would be my hypothesis. No, and it's a win-win proposition. Uh, for Lukashenko, because he gets all the credit. Right. Lost you any thoughts on that before we move into the second half? No, generally, I agree. Look, uh, with all due respect, my Belarusian friends, Belarus today is a de facto half colony of Russia. Lukashenko will do whatever Putin tells him to do. So I think he was used to basically give it some kind of very grandiose sounding and very solid uh, air, all this sort of solution, if you wish. Also, they needed to move Wagner people, at least some of them that, that agreed to do it, outside of Russia, but where? I mean, Belarus is notionally outside of Russia. As I think, Lukashenko will make use of them because they're going to train his poorly trained armed forces, and that is it. But of course, the solo here was Putin's, because it was Putin who just asked him to do it. And it was an offer that Lukashenko couldn't refuse. Yeah, an unintended consequence of that is it may have made Putin look weak. It kind of looked to the untrained eye like Lukashenko was saving Putin's bacon, which doesn't really make Putin look terribly strong. Um, on that note, we'll shift gears. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion. And look at how Prigozhin's mutiny might affect Russia's ability to continue its war of aggression against Ukraine. I'd like to remind you that you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is the one and only James Sher. 
a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program of Chatham House and author of the book, Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. And also joining us from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's enchanting capital city, Vilnius, is my old friend, Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC Russia Service. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Ripple podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us, at least for now, on the Twitter at Power Vertical. <laughs> що господаря Росії нічого не контролюють. Взагалі нічого. Просто повний хаос. So as the drama unfolded in Russia last weekend, Ukraine's counteroffensive continued apace. Contrast could not have been sharper. You had a unified, resilient, and resolute Ukraine and a Russia on the brink of chaos with an armed convoy moving toward the capital. The running joke in Ukraine is that there were severe popcorn shortages. James, what impact do you see this having on the war? I know you have something of a contrarian view on this right now. Uh, probably several contrarian views. First of all, this stage of the war is not going well for Ukraine. Not all that astonishing to a number of the senior military players in Ukraine who have tended to be soberly optimistic but who have understood uh, that this is going to be a very, very long and protracted uh, struggle, uh, a conflict. They've understood that. Um, the the very high expectations of stunning Ukrainian success were not tolerated by those professionals inside Ukraine. This is no, they were not. They were they were tamping down expectations. Media media uh, um, generated and a lot of politicians and but yet, unfortunately. This paradigm of Ukraine's stunning success and its inevitable victory is still there. And we really need to back off and correct a lot of it. Now, so the first point is, on the ground, what has happened has not affected anything. It doesn't make the triple echelon defenses of the Russians any weaker or Ukraine's problems, operational problems, any easier. But... What I'm saying will come in three parts. The second part is that already we see, when you see Soroviking now out of the picture, a highly capable military officer, uh, probably the most capable Russian military officer in Ukraine, start out of the picture. You look at some of the other people who are connected with Prigozhin, they are now out of the picture. Prigozhin himself and Wagner are out of the picture. They're not going to be fighting under their own colors in Ukraine anymore. But the bigger issue is this, that a Russian state, which is ruthless at, uh, at um, clearing off any sign of domestic protest or discontent, suddenly emerges as completely defenseless when facing an armed rebellion. And there was a prequel to this in the cross-border raids by clearly Ukrainian-financed and directed Russian 
anti-regime groups towards Bilgorod, which also demonstrated there are no defenses. The border, the the border guards are effectively not there. There are no structures there. They're not effectively opposed. Uh, so what does this mean? It means if you are worried now about the internal stability in Russia, all these weaknesses are now going to be seen by the whole world. And therefore, there are going to be pressures to strengthen the um, internal security components inside Russia. And inevitably, some of that is going to have to come from the army that is fighting in Ukraine, because most of the effective operational army that Russia has now is fighting in Ukraine. So that is a positive for Ukraine, a negative for Russia. But then we get to the third issue, which worries me most. Uh, I'll come back to something Kostya said in the first half, which I think was too optimistic. That after all of this, um, Putin wouldn't dare be tough with the West. Well, I disagree because he can see already. Look at the EU foreign ministers meeting in Luxembourg. Look at Biden's recent conversations over the past weekend with the G7 leaders. They have demonstrated again, many of them, are panic-stricken about instability in Russia. And what's the first thing they say? We don't want a civil war. We don't want instability there. The last thing we can do afford to do is put Putin into a corner. And so let's not provoke him. And so just at the point when it seemed that Biden was about to approve after months and months and months, and months of pressure from the Ukrainians and appeals, the dispatch of long-range weapon systems that Ukraine saw the attack on him. Yes. Uh, it now all looks in doubt again. So if the message the West sends to Moscow once again is fear, then this does not look good for the war at all. And particularly when you consider the fact that key political leaders, including Biden himself, seem to have talked themselves into believing that we'll know where all this ends by September or October, and then we'll have to draw conclusions about what we do next. This is very, very bad news. So Putin is going to be able to weaponize this chaos in Russia to to basically do a, do a reflexive control operation on the West? We will do it ourselves. However, whatever disarray Russia is in, we keep deterring our, ourselves. Self-deterrence, as our friend Ben Hodges encumbering. Uh, can, can, can I interject? Yeah, cost you. Yeah. I think that, well, I was very specific. I said I'm certain that Putin is not going to do anything about uh, you know, blowing up the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant or attacking NATO. Uh, I think that he knows where he's facing unsurmountable difficulties and where his adversaries are much stronger than he is, way stronger. What I'm not, what I wasn't saying is that he's not going to use the situation to again uh, divide the West, again say either I or the horrible forces of fascism, and I wasn't saying that he's going to um, that he's going to cut down uh, on his military activity in Ukraine. That's what I wasn't saying. Uh, certainly, 
suggest. Yeah, no, I think what James is saying is that, they, that this this presents an oppor- a, a kind of inadvertent opportunity because the West is going to get spooked by the, the the prospect of instability in Russia. There was a column by by Thomas Friedman in the New York Times to this effect of the dangers of this uh, for the West. Uh, the voices that basically want us to 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 uh, to to decrease our support for Ukraine are going to are are, are are having a moment right now. I see that, but I'm I'm not sure I share James's pessimism on this going forward. I I, I think that's certainly a possibility. It's certainly ri- certainly a risk. It's something certainly something we have to be vigilant about. Uh, it's certainly those of us with megaphones are going to try to push back against um, here in Washington and hopefully in other Western capitals. Um, but I think I mean this, especially coming up to the Vilnius summit, when decisions about Ukraine's future are going to be made. Um, you know, I, I think uh, you, we need a renewed push right now to 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 continue to and increase support for Ukraine and, and and get something tangible and deliverable out of that out of that Vilnius summit and the attackums, which uh, you're right, James. We're seeing reports that the, the administration is finally gonna gonna give those to Ukraine. It would be a a tragic mistake if this caused uh, uh, the U.S. to back off on that. Um, James, I want to go back to your assessment of where the Ukrainian counteroffensive is now. I agree with you that it has not uh, met the expectations, the unrealistically high expectations that were made by some analysts and in the press. But if you listen to the Ukrainians, they expected this to be tough. Um, and they, had a, they, they say they have a plan and they're sticking to it. And the thing that really you want to measure it against is measuring against their expectations of where they thought they would be at this point, not our expectations of where they would be at this point. I'm kind of reserving judgment right now. What I see Ukraine doing at the moment is just they're they're probing and pushing forward and attempting to find the spot where they could make a breach. What's happened so far is suggested to me that they just simply have not found that spot yet. Um, that's my understanding of, of this from talking to, 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 to military analysts. I was genuinely surprised last weekend when all of the drama was going down in Russia that Ukraine did not kind of try to exploit this on the battlefield. I didn't see any, like any, any, any changes. How, how would you assess that? I mean, I'm, I'm just not sure it's going as badly as we think it's going. I think it's definitely not going as well as we had expected. Well, look, the Ukrainians are advancing, and they're beating back Russian attack. Uh, and uh, it's only one, um, one access, uh, one access in Kremina where they seem to have made uh, the Russians have seemed to have made some advances. So, um, uh, so you know, the, if you come, if your baseline here is what Russia accomplished in months-long offensives to. Uh, to move west, and finally ended up with Bakhmut. Already, Ukraine has done vastly better than that. But at, at, uh, forgive me for sounding as if I'm parroting uh, Michael Kaufman, who I um, occasionally agree with about these matters. I think so far, Ukraine's performance has been towards the lower end of their own expectations, but still within, well within the spectrum of those expectations. Um, if I uh, if I were to play the role of armchair general, I'd be doing exactly what they are doing. You do not uh, until you can work out the solution to the mine problem. The Russian ability to lay mines is phenomenal. 
One has to give them credit for that. Until there is a counter for that, until you find sectors of the front where the danger is less extreme, uh, you dare not commit your best forces and assets right. attempt an operational level breakthrough. What a disaster that would be. I think we should be very comforted that Ukraine has the ground forces commander-in-chief and the overall commander-in-chief and the military command structure uh, that it has. I couldn't wish for, you couldn't wish for more capable people. Um, but they have to be given the scope to, to take advantage of such opportunities as present themselves. And when the opportunities are there, my God, they will act. And this is the, let me just add one other thing. You see, you look from a satellite at the defenses and the uh, all the rest of it, and you ask yourself, how much of this is solidly built? How much of it is papier-mâché? If you're, you know, you're conscious of the whole, the, the influence of the Pachomkin village in Russian thinking. Well, it's all, uh, this, these key sectors is pretty, pretty solid stuff. But you're still very possibly looking at a Pachomkin facade, mm -hmm. but very thick and strong Pachomkin facade. And there are already reports of what has happened when Ukrainian soldiers, have go, when the Ukrainian forces have gone beyond that, in some cases finding Russian troops who have no weapons at all. Uh, when, it, when they achieve these breakthroughs, the change in dynamic and dynamics can suddenly become very startling. But you can't keep them. My concern, which I come back to, and you say it's too pessimistic, is that the pressures from the West are to keep them on the leash and to confront them with deadlines and uh, and, and and so on. And this pressure is deeply unhelpful. To no, I would I would agree with that. And zooming out, James, I mean, from to kind of take what you said, your three points there holistically, what I heard you say is effectively that over the long haul, this is going to, what just happened in Russia, is going to diminish Russia's war fight, fighting capabilities. So the advantage Ukraine, with the caveat that the West doesn't lose its nerve and the West doesn't keep Ukraine on too tight of a leash. That's what I, that's, that's the, and I would wholeheartedly endorse that and agree with that. And it makes me want to push back on any 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 cold feet here in the West even more uh, forcefully. Anything to add there, James? No, you summed it up well. Super. I cost you more. I'm, I'm watching the clock, uh, and I know we're bumping up against the end here. Do you have any uh, any last thoughts before we wrap it up for the week? Uh, well, I think the only thing I would like to add to that is that um, the. Ukrainians will probably be thinking very hard, not so much about the way of, of uh, you know, fighting the war on the ground, but about psychological and political operations that can weaken uh, the Russian regime. Yes. Well, if I were in, in, in Kiev, I would have been thinking about that. Well, if I were in Kiev, I'd be thinking long and hard about it, and I'll be talking to Western allies about it. It's not going to be an easy thing uh, to discuss 
just because of this, oh, let us not um, throw Russia into throes of instability. I mean, it is already unstable, well, to, to an unimaginable extent. But, I know, old habits die hard. So my thinking is that Ukraine will have to be very inventive about essentially tickling the Russian regime and destabilizing it to the extent Ukraine can. Okay, I, yeah, I just, yeah, yeah, last word to you, James, before we wrap it up. You know, even for me sitting here, dealing with the voices you hear in Western capitals, it's like listening to a weekend of old aunties. You have, <laughs> you have one lot saying that uh, warning that Ukraine, it's not possible for Ukraine to win this. Russia is too strong. Russia's not going away. We have to make realistic accommodation. And then when Russia starts shaking uh, and Russia's weaknesses come out, the other lot of aunties are saying, oh my God, we have to be ultra conscious not to make Russia weak. Well, you know, for heaven's, for, for heaven's sakes, uh, and Ukraine has more important things to do than to manage our neuroses. <laughs> but our, but we are, but you know, very often if you you look at the, what the policymakers are saying, you feel you're dealing with people who are who are governed by neuroses, and and not by hard geopolitical realities and a hard a hard objective understanding of who their adversary is and how he thinks. And I hope Kostya would agree with me about that. He said uh, silently. But uh, that's the last, that's all I want. Yeah, no, it's just like, it's like, how, it's almost kind of a redux of the Chicken Keefe speech back in 1991 <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, I, 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 I do agree with James, though. I, I, I'd like to think we've learned something. Well, I'm, and I'm, I'm again, I'm looking at the clock and we're bumping up against the end. So on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Ritual Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Army's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the absolutely magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn has been my old friend James Sher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion. Russia's influence abroad. And also joining us from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's enchanting capital city, Vilnius, has been the one and only Konstantin Egger, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC's Russian service. Thank you both for a very enlightening and lively discussion and for making us all a lot smarter. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance League is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. 
I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 